us in one way or another have suppressed memories. Something that we, uh, on the one hand, have forgotten, maybe even chosen to have forgotten, maybe passively just have let slip, but there are these deep memories within all of us of a king and a kingdom. Think with me. The myths, all the, the, so many of the old myths, the old legends of years gone by of a great, noble, mighty king and his reign. The golden age in which he reigned. And the flourishing and life within that kingdom while he was there upon the throne. But now the king is gone. He has gone away. And life within the kingdom is withering. It's no, it's but a shadow, but a glimmer of what it once was. And there's this yearning for his return and a confidence that when he does, he will come and make all things right. Anthropologists, historians, literary types will tell you that there is something of that kind of story, that kind of legend, that kind of myth in cultures all over the world all, and all kinds of timelines. And it begs the question, why? What is, it, what is so compelling about that storyline that brings forth uh, legends and myths that are so consistent across so many different cultures, especially when you consider the record of most kings, right? That of tyranny and tragedy and dominance instead of real care. How, how do we explain then that, that we, all these tellings of this, in essence, the same story? Well, this is what it is. This deep memory. This deep longing that we have for the king. Well, here's the thing. This may surprise you. But the legends and stories are true. There is such a king. And his name is Jesus. And he has come, and he is coming again. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. We are pressing on in our series here in Matthew's Gospel. We are in Matthew 4. If you're trying to find that in your Bible, this is the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the four uh, Gospels, Matthew, then Mark, and then Luke, and then John. We are in Matthew 4, um, this is the very early stages of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Hear now the word of God. Now when he, that's Jesus, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know something, even if we don't even quite understand this quotation here from Isaiah, uh, of this light dawning upon a land that, and a people dwelling in darkness, 
in deep darkness, in the shadow of death, seeing a, a great light. We, can, we know something of what it is to live in such darkness and know something of what it is to long for such light. And we thank you that it's quite clear you have shown us here in your word who this light is, and it is your Son, it is Jesus, it is the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, we ask that you would help us to understand something more of, of this particular passage, of how it, of course, fits in the overall narrative of, of Matthew and the history being laid out here, but not just that, but in the overall flow of all of history and of your dealings with, with us, with the people, with mankind, with creation, with all. Uh, we ask that you'd help us give, us, give us an understanding of these things, but more than just an understanding such that we could just sort of nod in assent and agreement, but oh, may you push it further and beyond that such that we would be um, gripped deeply within by these realities and then longing and striving to live in a way that is consistent with them. And we ask that, and we pray for your mercy and your help in that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you, just looking at what we just read, just thinking this through, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus, uh, if you have, uh, let me put it this way, if, if you've been a part of this sermon series for any time at all, you, or if you've read any of Matthew's, the early chapters, you may have picked up on something, and that is that what, John, what Jesus is saying here, this one line that you read there in verse 17. What Jesus is saying there, which by the way is really the summary, the theme statement of his teaching and preaching, which you read there in verse 17, sounds a whole lot like, in fact verbatim, John's message, John the Baptist. And there's a reason for that. In many respects, Jesus is picking up where John has left off and building on it. John has been arrested. It's a turning point in things here in Matthew's Gospel. We see something of that in the phrasing that he uses there in the beginning of verse 17. From that time, it's code for a new stage in development in Matthew's the Gospel. Jesus is now, uh, just in, as the prophet Isaiah said he would centuries before, so in accord with ancient prophecy, Jesus is moving to the north. No longer is he calling his home Nazareth, that little backwoods uh, backwater town of, of Nazareth in, in the hills, but now moving north to the territory of Galilee, a densely populated, cosmopolitan, uh, very mixed and very, uh, very varied, something like that, population there to the, the north, specifically to Capernaum. Capernaum, this town that sits on a major trade route right there on the, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus is going. And as a summary, Matthew tells us from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean to repent? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, here's what it doesn't look like. Um, the story is told of a shoplifter who writes to a department store uh, and says, I've just become a Christian, and I, 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 I need to tell you, I, I can't sleep at night because I feel so, so guilty, so here's a $100 bill that I stole from you. And then look down at the bottom of the note, and there's this little postscript, and it says, oh, and, and by the way, if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. That's not repentance. 
Repentance is something much more in this line, which is actually a true story. May 2001, a preacher in Liverpool, England, is preaching a series of sermons to the Ten Commandments. He gets to the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. And something just breaks forth among the hearers. Um, conscious, stricken people start handing in masses of stolen goods. These are good church-going people, you know. Hotel towels, bathrobes, cash, hospital crutches, library books, CDs. One man who was now a pastor, a, a vicar in a local Anglican church, um, who apparently used to work at the Wimbledon tennis area, turned in a series of Wimbledon towels that he had stolen years before in the context of one of the tournaments. Well, what's going on with that? What, what drives a response like that? Why would you bother to do... Well, because repentance is an internal change that brings forth external results. It's a U-turn. It's a turning from self-rule to Christ-rule. An internal change with, with external results. The, 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 what's behind that, the driving force behind that is the king, this news, this announcement that the kingdom, is, as Jesus says here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That brings forth a response. When it's heard rightly, when it's heard truly, brings forth a response of repentance. Uh, we're going to look at this in, in, in two ways uh, here this morning for the time that we have. Um, first, consider these two questions. What is the, the, the breadth of the kingdom? How far does it go? How far does it reach? That's worth considering. The second point is, is this, talking about the actual coming of the kingdom. How and when does it come? So what are we looking for and when are we looking for it? I suppose you could put it that way. So those two things. Well, let's take the plunge in here. First, the breadth of the kingdom. How, how far does it go? How far indeed does it, it reach? Uh, in order to get at that, we need to have um, an understanding of the expectations of Jesus' hearers at the time. Now, for the Jewish mind, Jesus, the, the Jewish folks there who would have been his, his listeners at this, this time, uh, there was a general understanding of God as creator. God as the king. God as the maker of all things. God therein as the ruler, the sovereign, the king over all things. Keep your thumb here in Matthew. Turn with me to Psalm 103. Now there are, oh my goodness, we could, really could spend the rest of our time just looking up passages, probably even just in the Psalms, that reflect this point. God as the, just the general observation that God is the sovereign ruling king over all things. Psalm 103, verse 19, though, is a great example, I guess you could say, standing in part for the whole of all the places we could look. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So there was this general sense, this general understanding, God is the king, always has been, always will be. But there's tension that that creates. Because even while... You look into heaven and you recognize that all the angelic beings gladly, readily, voluntarily, quickly fall down and readily offer themselves in worship and obedience and service to God as the king. That's in heaven. Look down on earth. And what do you see? Rebellion against the king. 
resistance to his rule. Reign upon reign, kingdom upon kingdom on earth, rising and asserting itself and pushing back against the Lord and his people. What do you do with that? And so they had this understanding that that tension had to be resolved. And they saw it in the prophets in such places as Daniel 7, like we read just a little while ago. And they're reading, I don't need to add this, they're reading of such passages as that, as to how that tension was going to be resolved. The Messiah would come. The Messiah would come. And because they understood in their reading of the, the text, in their reading of the Old Testament, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, was predominantly really about the nation of Israel and his care of Israel. What that demanded was for the tension to be resolved, the Messiah was going to have to come and drive the Romans out. That's their vision of the kingdom. That's their expectations. Jesus comes and expectations collide with reality. Because their expectations are flawed. Their reading of those texts is just a little bit off in their understanding. It's limited. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go high enough, wide enough, deep enough. The problem is not just the Romans. That's but a manifestation, a symptom of a much larger problem. The reality was Israel was never meant to be an end in and of itself. Israel was meant to be a staging ground for the coming of the kingdom. Abraham, Moses, David, all were meant to serve a larger purpose of the establishment and the growth of, the spread of, of the kingdom to all nations, all peoples, all places. It was never really just about them, which is a message we oftentimes need to look in the mirror and repeat to ourselves. It's never really just about us. The idea is, what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom, the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, you see it used in different ways uh, in the Gospels. But the kingdom of heaven God's, is about God's sovereign reign, his rule coming down out of heaven and taking root on earth. His authority spreading forth on earth, right? as it is in heaven, such that all disease, all emptiness, all broken relationships, all poverty, all injustice, all racism would be displaced by the coming of shalom. The rule and reign of God, the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the kingdom that he's talking about. Jesus has come. Jesus has come to begin a revolution. Not a rebellion, but a restoration, a reclamation. He is bringing God's kingly rule to bear on our sin-infected, sin-scarred world. Think of the, the old Robin Hood tales. Right? Good King Richard come back to England from the Crusades to fight against, to resist, and drive out the usurper, the evil Prince John. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. Or the more modern Narnia stories. 
Uh, the, the old rhyme that C.S. Lewis writes, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. That's a picture of Jesus and the wonder and the breadth of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, his rule, his reign in this world, which, which my friends, goes so much further than what we have heard the gospel is. We think it's all about us. We think it's a, the, the gospel is just about our being made right with God. It is that, but that is a smaller part of a much larger message. The good news of the kingdom of God, which again was the very theme of, the essence of, Jesus' preaching and teaching. And we need to get back to that. What is the real Gospel. What is the, the real, the greater good news? I read a quote earlier from Alan Wakabayashi. I'm just trying so hard to get that pronunciation right. Yeah, but it's the microphone. It's not me. Um, here, here's a quote from, from one of his works. It's not just about individuals gaining forgiveness so they can secure their destinies in heaven. It is also about God's kingly reign, his will coming to bear in all areas of life here and now. It's not just about saving the soul, but about caring for the body, about healing brokenness and reconciling divisions and conflicts. It's not just about evangelism, but also about seeing justice overcome injustice, seeing the poor fed, healing divisions of race and social class, and seeing brokenness and pain healed with the love and power of Jesus. Wherever there is need and brokenness in our world, the good news is that Jesus has come to begin the process of making it right. Rather than the gospel being about how we get to heaven, it's more like seeing heaven break into our world. Or as Isaac Watts penned in that song that we sing at Christmas time, no more let sins and sorrows grow. It's right here. Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Joy of the world indeed. That's the message. So what are the ramifications of this? What does that mean then for us? It means that every topic of study, every arena of, of labor, everything that we put our hand to needs to be understood is, is, is within the, the, the corpus of God's reign. His rule, part of the coming of the kingdom, it is all of it is broken, all of it is broken, all of it is tainted, and all of it is being remade and reclaimed by Jesus. And we need to wrestle through the, the, the implications of this. Media and music, humor and hobbies, food and physics, sports and stocks, gender and geriatrics, arts and care for the animals, technology and the speaking of truth. All of that and everything under the sun is included in this discussion of what does it mean to live with Jesus as our king, given that the king has come. And by the way, to the extent, to the extent that we are falling short in any of those areas, in living in that way, we need to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's, that's, that's what Jesus said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that then begs a question, moving beyond the breadth of the kingdom to the coming of the kingdom. How does it come? 
When does it come? We need to consider that as well, just as much as the first thing. Uh, And again, we need to wrestle here through with the expectations of Jesus' hearers, the the Jewish people as they're listening to him, and the, the expectations they had, and again, how that collides with the reality of what he's saying. Their expectations, were their, their understanding of, of history was, was fairly simple, divided into two ages. The old age of sin and evil and death and the age to come of God's rule and reign and justice and righteousness and love coming to bear. And those two ages, the mark between them being, I alluded to this before, the coming of the Messiah who would come and drive out the old age and replace it with this age to come. But you understand that their their concept was there was no overlap, there was no muddling, there was no admixture of those two ages. Their understanding was when the Messiah came, boom! Old age gone. Age to come now. Well, Jesus comes and messes all that up. Yes, his teaching was unlike anything they had ever heard. Yes, his miracles were unlike anything that they had ever seen. But, John the Baptist is in prison. The Romans are still running the country. The people are still oppressed. And as though that's not bad enough, if you keep reading in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus starts talking about his death, his being arrested and killed. And not just that, but via the shameful, horrific, Humiliating. That word doesn't, I don't know, it's not strong enough. Crucifixion. All that makes no sense to the Jewish mind. Expectations are colliding with reality. All right, what's the reality? What is Jesus saying when he says the kingdom has, has come? Well, it has come. There's a certain sense in which it is absolutely present. Um, with the coming of Christ, with his life and death and resurrection and ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom has come. Absolutely. We have new life in Christ now. Full pardon and forgiveness of sin. Now. You don't have to wait. It's now. Because of his empower in the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and an empowering of the Holy Spirit, We have the ability to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. We have been given a new identity. We have been placed in a new community. We have a purpose, a real glorious purpose that he has given us in this life now. The kingdom has come, but it has yet to come in full. Because even while there is a present element, there is still a future element. Satan is bound, that's right. He's on a chain, that's right, like a mad, rabid dog. But it's a long chain. 
there are times we see astonishing answers to prayer that make our hearts swell with joy and praise. Within hours, we are crying out, How long, O Lord? We have been freed from the power and the tyranny of sin. Every one of us, if you're a Christian. And yet, all it takes is a shift of mood. And we're snapping at each other. You see the tension here. And and the scriptures speak to this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews almost says this in passing. Almost says it in passing. Just sort of taking it for granted. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14. For by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, sounds very present, those who are being sanctified. It ain't done yet. Or, you want to think in terms of the war within your heart and mind, head to the left a few letters, to Romans 7. And Paul describing the battle within his own heart. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, see, there is that desire. The kingdom has come. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It has yet to come in full. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's what's going on here. We live in a, in, with this tension. Uh, we, we live be- between the times of Christ's first and second coming in what theologians refer to as the times of the now and the not yet. This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's that full-orbed understanding of what he means actually when he says that. Probably the best way to illustrate this, and it's not original to me by any stretch. I think it was original to Oscar Kuhlman, and lots of people have copied it from him in the decades since. But D-Day, June 6, 1944, when the Allied forces stormed Normandy, France, in the struggle against Nazi Germany. Now, lots, hundreds, hundreds of those Allied soldiers were picked off and died in the course of that campaign. At great cost, though, they finally were able to take the beachhead. And once that beachhead was taken, that was the climactic turning point. That was the battle. For all practical purposes, yes, there were more skirmishes. Yes, there were more battles. Yes, there would be more casualties. But for all practical purposes, the war was determined at that point. Victory was assured. It was but a matter of time. The strategy at that point was to press in and push for full unconditional surrender. Once the tide had turned. Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection from the tomb. That is D-Day. The decisive battle has been fought and won. The tide has been turned. Victory is assured. Yes, there are skirmishes. Yes, there are battles. Yes, there are casualties. Yes, there is pain. Yes, there is tension. But victory is assured when he returns. And that will be the V-Day in the Great War. And it will be finished once and for all. 
Ours, our calling is to soldier on as we wait. We live in, in, in this tension, the times between, the now, not yet. And it, I, my friends, I cannot say this strongly enough. It is vital we understand that and not have an overly simplistic, dumbed-down understanding of the times in which we live. Why? Lest we become ridiculously optimistic and triumphalistic in our perspective and expectations. We need to be guarded and protected against disappointment and disillusionment and despair. We need to be people of hope. We should be. We should be more optimistic than anyone else on the globe, but grounded. And know the times. And know the times. That said, I don't want to nuance this so much. Be sober-minded. Don't get your expectations too high. Don't hope too much. I don't want to end like that because I don't think that would be appropriate for what Jesus is saying. He is the king, daggone it. The present factor does mean something. What then does it mean? What then does it look like to live as Jesus as your king today? I'm copying this. I'm taking this right from a sermon that Tim Keller preached some years ago in Psalm 2. These four points that he made here. And I think they're very, very helpful. And there are these four points. What does it look like? These four things. Obedience, submission, reliance, and expectation. Obedience, submission, reliance, and expectation. Let me explain them. Obedience. We are not to... Ours is not a to be with a king. Jesus as our king. Ours is not to be a conditional following. I'll do that if you'll give me this. I'll go there. I'll commit to that if you'll do that. Friends, that is not something you say to a king. That is something you say to a consultant. Obedience. Submission. We trust him. We trust this king. No matter how ugly it is, no matter how dark things may seem, no matter what your impression is, no matter what your feelings may tell you, that's not ruling out tears. That's not ruling out the possibility of bitter tears along the way. But it is a call for us to remember that his purposes are always good. And his hand will never let us go. Obedience, submission, reliance. Looking to Him for our deepest, highest joy. Not to anyone, not to anything else. Looking chiefly, solely, overwhelmingly to Him and to Him alone for our heart's satisfaction and meaning. Obedience, submission, reliance, expectation. He is the King. We should be living boldly. We should be accustomed to. It should be the norm for us to be asking great things of a great king and stop walking around with our tails between our legs as whoop little puppies. As though we have got nothing but an eeyore puddle-glummish, 
glass-half-empty, pessimistic outlook on all of life and what tomorrow may bring. For he is the king. He is the king. And again, I would say, to myself and to all of you, to all of us, we need to hear this. At least these four things. Obedience and submission and reliance and expectation. To the degree that we are falling short in these areas, we need to repent. Why? What did Jesus say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now understand that that everything here, this is not advice. This is not advice. This is news. This is not counsel. This is a proclamation. Advice, counsel, often even the best intention, without hope will do what? Crush you. You need to work on your physical health. You've got issues, man. I mean, you need to take these supplements. You need to get on this exercise regimen. You need to, to I mean, be all about this diet and on it. What does that do to you? Or spiritually, you need to get your spiritual health in order. Come on! You need to pray like this. You need to read these books. You need to go on this pilgrimage. What it, however well-meaning such advice and counsel may be, what does it do to you? In the end, crushes you. It's just more weight crushing you. This is not advice. This is not counsel. This is news. This is a proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is not, you need to do this. This is simply, you need to know this. And those two things are worlds apart. It's why Christianity stands worlds apart amidst all the world's religions. Because it's a pronouncement. It's a declaration. And to the degree that you take that into the the, the bosom of your being, the depths of your heart, it will stir something within you. It will be like a spring welling forth that will create pressure within the inside of a mountain, causing fissures to crack open in the sides and the externals, and that water begging for a place to go. How do you channel it? How is that water to flow? Jesus says, repent. Turn away from yourself. Turn to me and how you see and how you think and how you feel and how you live and how you work and how you play in your opinions, in your convictions, in your positions about everything, money, sex, race, politics, all of it. Turn from yourself and turn to me. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does this make you nervous? Good. You're hearing it. We painted, well, not really we, but we had a room. A room was painted. I'll put it that way. A room was painted in our house this past week. Uh, a little, little bit of uh, straightening up, a little bit of cleaning up, a little bit of a refurb, a little bit of renewal. It's nice. It's not like we knocked, knocked walls down, though. It's not like the foundation got moved. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that goes into the center of your being and changes everything. 
and moves on its way out from there. You getting nervous? A little scary? That means you're hearing it. That means you're hearing it. We need to hear it. I need to hear it. So do you. Let's pray. Lord, you are the king. The son of David. Made it clear from the start of this, the genealogy in Matthew's gospel, the son of David. And then the magi come, looking for the king. The nations are coming to the king. Yours is the kingdom, present and future. We struggle with this, oh Lord. We, we struggle. We do. We really do. We, it's hard to... On the, we, uh, t- today, we'll, we'll have a vision of the kingdom that is all future with no sense of submission today. Tomorrow, we'll have a view of the kingdom that's all present with no sense of expectation of what's coming. We pray that you give us this full view and engage. We thank you for this call. We thank you for this summary here in Matthew 4 of the gospel message, the good news, the coming of the king and the kingdom. And We pray that you would be merciful to us and help us to hear it. Amen.